Hey everyone, this is TJ Raphael, the host of Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm back to share something really special. The first episode of my new show, Cover Up the Pill Plot. If you like Biohacked, I really think you'll like the pill plot too, because it's all about reproductive health and justice. But in this story, I uncover a wild international drug smuggling scheme a scheme that's set up to lift an American ban on the abortion pill. The people I've talked to for this series have battled presidents, the Supreme Court, militant anti-abortionists, former Nazis, and would-be assassins and murderers. It's truly a wild story, and I really hope you love it. Here's episode one of Cover Up, The Pill Plot. I live in New York, and outside of Times Square, John F. Kennedy International Airport is the most chaotic place in the city. Every time I go there, it's a zoo. Tens of millions of passengers go through that airport every year. And every person, bag, and dog carrier on any flight has to go through some kind of screening. And for the most part, it is pretty routine. But every now and then, there's that one person, that one bag that breaks up the monotony and makes headlines. About 28 pounds of cocaine were seized at JFK Airport after being found in the Like the woman who tried to smuggle cocaine in the wheels of her wheelchair. Or the guy who was caught with 35 songbirds hidden inside hair curlers. Or this one. Let's take a look at this, a sticky situation at Kennedy Airport. A guy had packed two jars of peanut butter in his suitcase and they were filled with parts from a disassembled semi-automatic handgun. But last summer, I heard this story that I think beats them all. Because what these folks brought into JFK three decades ago is still making headlines today. Like, actually today. And that story starts here. On British Airways Flight 173 on July 1st, 1992. There's these two people traveling together. There's a woman, Leona. She's in her late 20s. She's a punk, a little scruffy. And then there's this much older man, Larry. He could be her grandfather. He's 72, super fancy, in a suit that you don't buy off the rack. They're the kind of couple that makes you look twice. What are those two up to exactly? And you can tell they're up to something because he keeps going over and over some kind of plan with her. At some point, Leona, the punk, she gets up to use the toilet. When she comes out, she looks different. She's not wearing her jeans anymore. She's wearing a black pencil skirt. And then just before they touch down, Larry hands Leona an envelope. And when the plane lands, They stay put. They want to be the last ones off the flight. Because they have an entrance to make. Whatever Larry was muttering about on the plane, it's about to go down. They make it to customs and they hand their passports to the agent. 
The envelope is burning a hole in Leona's pocket, but she tries to stay cool, which gets harder when she sees their names written in all caps on a piece of paper on the agent's desk. And a single word, female. The feds are onto them. Customs have been alerted that there was somebody coming in with an illegal drug. Federal agents separate them. They take Larry into one room and start sifting through his luggage. They're searching him as a common crook, you know what I mean? And they take Leona into a separate room. And she hands over what they've been looking for, the envelope. It has pills in it, and they're illegal in the U.S. The agents seize the drugs. But then they let Larry and Leona go. There's no arrest. So they head for the exit. And all hell broke loose. A mob of reporters are waiting outside for them. And they looked through my luggage, and then they took me into the back room and they patted me down. But Larry, the older guy in the suit, yeah, he isn't surprised. Because this is all going exactly as he planned. You see, Larry was the one who tipped off the feds. I was worried because Larry, you never know, he give you surprises here or there. Why such a big dust-up over a small amount of drugs? What's inside the envelope isn't heroin or cocaine. This wasn't part of the war on drugs. But it was from another seemingly endless American war. That pill authorities had seized? It was RU486, also known as Mifepristone, the abortion pill. RU486 was the medication that was supposed to provide an escape from the chaos of the American abortion wars. It's a drug that offers a simpler, easier, and more private way for people to end their pregnancies, far away from the shouting protesters that haunted clinics in the 1990s. More than 100 anti-abortion protesters were arrested for blocking an entranceway. Since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the pill has taken center stage. But how we got this medication is a decade-long saga, packed with an unlikely cast of collaborators who are all pushing towards one goal, to bring the abortion pill to America. It's a story that has mostly been forgotten to history, until now. From Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up the Pill Plot. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. On this season, I'll take you on the wild ride to get the pill into American hands, whatever it took. Battling presidents, the Supreme Court, former Nazis, anarchist punks, and would-be assassins and murderers. It's 100 degrees. You are not going to get away with this. Keep the abortion clinic closed. Keep it closed. On today's show... Chapter One, Light a Fuse. Stay with us. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. 
and we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My family name is Lindsay Cum, but I didn't want to have a last name of Cum because there was too many jokes. <laughs> so I changed the E to a Y. So I became Lindsay Comey. So my mom, when people would say, why did she change her name? She would say, oh, she's political. It keeps her name out of the papers. <laughs> and That's how I found you. <laughs> the, and I was in a lot of papers, I think. Last winter, I flew out to California to meet up with Lindsay Comey. Without her, that scene at JFK... Well, it probably would have never happened. So we became outside agitators. Lindsay worked in reproductive health in the Bay Area for over four decades. She's helped a lot of people get birth control, STD tests, health screenings, and abortions. When I meet up with Lindsay in Oakland, her silver hair is cut short, her eyebrows dyed electric blue, and she's wearing what appears to be a vintage leather jacket. So I was kind of known as a radical punk a bit. Lindsay might be a radical, but she started out pretty deep in the establishment. Eleven days after I turned 18, I signed the papers and was off to the Navy. I never wanted to be a foot soldier. So for me, my choice was Navy or Air Force. Honestly, I didn't like the Air Force uniform. <laughs> Honestly. Lindsay joins up and is shipped off to serve as a combat medic in the Vietnam War. I was a feminist. I really thought having women go into the service that you would change the nature to be egalitarian. War is never egalitarian. In 1978, Lindsay returns to the U.S. She's in her mid-20s. I think as a veteran, it was really important for me to have work that I felt was honorable. In 1973, Roe v. Wade becomes the law of the land. So when Lindsay's looking around after her time in the service, she thinks a gig in this brand new and expanding field of reproductive health care might be the best option for her. What can I do that is the opposite of this war culture? And Lindsay finds what she's looking for at Women's Choice Clinic in Oakland. The clinic actually opened in a little house off an alley. And the women actually lived in the house and provided services and information. It was just an itty-bitty little house that they did all this stuff out of. Women's Choice actually set up shop the year before Roe v. Wade. And afterwards, they're able to move into a larger office building. And the clinic expands to five more sites across the state of California. I used to say we were good feminists, bad capitalists, because we always ran on the minimal margin. Lindsay and her colleagues are trained as health educators. That means they're working with clients face-to-face, -face, helping them, counseling them, joking with them. Not only were we your health provider, but we were your resource. We were your information funneling center. We were your job. We were your lovers, you know? So we were totally enmeshed within the community. In the mid-1970s after Roe, Lindsay's happy to be swept up in the momentum. It was an explosion of feminism, especially in the early years after the initial Roe v. Wade decision. It was a freedom. As the years went on, the anti-movement, the harassment, this was not a peaceful 
clash of ideology. This was a reign of terror. In 1988, Lindsay's a little over 10 years into her work at Women's Choice Clinic. She's used to dealing with protesters, but she starts to see a shift. The protesters are getting bolder. They were using tactics that you use for cloud control, you know, in a riot. And they were using it against us, these little women trying to get our clients in the building. And they did that by putting their bodies, by blocking doors, by knocking people down by putting chopped up baby pictures in their faces. How many people can work in an environment where you're harassed like that? It was fear inducing. So that means your patients aren't getting their services or you're having them climb up a fire ladder in the back of the building. Now, how much time do you have to take to get someone's blood pressure to go down after they go through a scene like that? And it just keeps escalating. We got hate mail. You know, we survived acid attacks. It never ended. And that's how we got into RU-46. RU-486, also known as the French abortion pill, offers women a safe and effective way to terminate early pregnancy without surgery. In October 1988, this drug, RU-486, a.k.a. Mifepristone, a.k.a. the French abortion pill, hits the market in Europe. The French health minister heralds it as the moral property of women. After six years of testing, scientists tout it as this massive medical breakthrough. And RU486 catches the attention of people in the U.S., like Lindsay. You can take a pill, no one knows you're having an abortion. And in this day and age, that's what you need. RU486 works in the first trimester. When it's introduced in 88, it can only be used through the seventh week of pregnancy. When you take the French abortion pill, you're having a miscarriage. That happens 25% of the time anyway. RU486, mifepristone. It works by blocking the hormone progesterone that the body needs to maintain a pregnancy. The pill is usually followed by another drug, misoprostol, which makes the uterus contract. Take them together and a pregnancy will end in a miscarriage. This method of abortion doesn't require surgery, which, in theory, means it doesn't have to happen at a clinic. You can take it at home. What those medication-induced pills give us is privacy and body sovereignty, and that is profound to have in a handful of pills. In 2022, more than half of all abortions in this country were medication abortions. But back when it first came out, the U.S. didn't embrace it. In fact, seven months after RU486 hits the market, the FDA, under George H.W. Bush, makes a move. The Federal Drug Administration issued an import alert that banned anyone from bringing RU486 into the country for personal use. The FDA instructs customs agents to, quote, automatically detain all shipments of the drug. The FDA bans RU486. In fact, they ban any importation of the drug, even a small amount, for personal use. If you're thinking, is this normal? Good question. Lawmakers have the same one. The ban triggers congressional hearings in 1990. This issue is so loaded with emotionalism, I have a feeling that 
the FDA was carried away by the pressures of, of the right to lifers who made this a major public issue. That's Dr. William Regelson from the Medical College of Virginia. He's an oncologist, and he saw RU486 as a breakthrough drug with potential for treating breast cancer and Cushing's disease. During the hearing, then-Congressman Ron Wyden of Oregon notes that the FDA seemed to skip some steps in moving to ban the drug. I want to again see if I can understand why the agency, given even the controversy associated with this drug, wouldn't contact the leading scientists in the field to get their assessment. In fact, some of these scientists are on the government's payroll and they weren't uh, contacted. Why not? The hearings don't go anywhere. The ban stays. And abortions remain in the clinics, a place that's becoming more and more difficult to access. That shift in protest Lindsay's seeing? Yeah, it's happening across the country. Abortion clinics from coast to coast are being targeted by this new, more militant, and organized group of anti-abortion activists. We did it in New York, we did it in Atlanta, we did it in California. And that privacy RU486 offers? Patients are gonna need it. I thought I was leaving the war, but in truth, I just picked a different struggle. I picked a different side. I was no longer a good soldier. Now I was a soldier from my own side. That's next. Stay with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. It's called Operation Rescue, and they say that their mission is to stop what they call the murder of innocent babies, no matter what price they have to pay. The new tactics have led to thousands of arrests in the last three months in and around New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Tallahassee, Florida, and Cherry Hill, New Jersey. In the late 1980s, this anti-abortion group called Operation Rescue starts showing up at clinics. To my right, go to the side door. They're militant, and they want to end all abortion. Terry's troops followed the orders of their mostly male leaders. Both doors of the Margaret Sanger Clinic were quickly blocked. Police estimated the number of protesters at close to 1,000. Stop They stage massive protests, shout at people entering clinics, saying things like, don't kill your baby. They climb fences to get onto clinic grounds and physically barricade entrances. I remember one friend of mine talked about someone trying to get through her to get to the door of the clinic, and she really thought they were going to break her leg. But the thing that really sets Operation Rescue apart is this man. I'm Randall Terry. I am the founder of Operation Rescue. Randall Terry talks in fire, brimstone, and media-ready clips. He's extreme in his beliefs, but he's also charismatic and skilled with a mic. And 
He's a man who knows how to produce himself. I'll speak in sound bites. And if I start to say something and I stumble, my cue for myself and for you will be repeat. Okay. I will just say repeat, and then I'll give the line again. Randall knows how to get the media's attention with big stunts and bigger protests. The strategy from square one was to get media coverage. Politicians don't read the letters that are sent to them, but they do read the front page of the papers. They do watch the evening news. Randall says his journey to Operation Rescue started in 1983 with a revelation. I had a vision of a a scroll coming down in front of my eyes with instructions on it on what I was to do to bring abortion in America to an end. And I saw thousands of people in front of abortion clinics. I saw myself on the Phil Donahue show. I knew that I was gonna be on Phil Donahue. The way Randall tells it, and he tells it a lot, one day he's just this young evangelical preacher in Binghamton, New York, and the next day he finds himself called by God for a very specific mission. I thought maybe I was, you know, crazy, whatever. For the next month, I started reading the scriptures, trying to see if this could possibly have been God speaking to me. And I stumbled on these concepts in the scriptures. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. He hates it, and he wants it stopped. And when he reads these words, he thinks that God is trying to communicate directly with him. I don't think I was God's first choice. I think I just said yes. Randall says he starts to pray to end abortion, but he's dissatisfied with the results, and he's getting impatient. He looks around at the established anti-abortion groups and is like, yeah, they're not doing enough, not even close. National Right to Life was treacherous, that they were the Benedict Arnolds and the Judases of the pro-life movement. They're trying to have a, a, a calm, dignified discussion with people on the other side. Oh, we want a place at the table. I don't want a place at the table, not their table. I want to turn their table into firewood. Randall wants to stop abortion across the board, shut down every clinic, overturn Roe v. Wade, criminalize abortion. Birth control is on his hit list, too. And he believes the best way to get his message out there is with spectacle and, hopefully, some press coverage. And that is how Operation Rescue gets its start. We had chains and locks. In 1986, Randall ambushes a clinic close to home in Binghamton, New York. He'd moved to Binghamton just to protest this clinic. He even got an apartment in the neighborhood so he could pop by whenever he wanted. And what he does one early January morning will serve as the blueprint for Randall's mission going forward. We walked inside and the assistant director, she started yelling at us, get out, get out. And we just completely ignored her. Randall and his crew walk right into the clinic's procedure room. They pull out these massive metal chains and start locking themselves to the exam table and to medical equipment. They want to stop anyone from having an abortion that day. And then we could hear, we could hear the, the jingling of the keys, the footsteps of the officers coming down the hall. The police enter the room and tell Randall and his crew to unlock themselves, but they refuse. So they went and got bolt cutters. The cops cut the locks, but 
Operation Rescue isn't ready to go. We said, no, we're not gonna walk out. You're gonna have to carry us. And man, that ticked them off. Woo! They need to be physically carried out of the building. And Channel 12 News showed up at the last second. And that was on the evening news. This stunt has all the trappings of an Operation Rescue demonstration. Work in groups, get physical, stop care, create a scene, get media attention. But the local news is small potatoes. If Randall wants to realize his vision and make it to Phil Donahue, he's got to get more recruits. So he takes Operation Rescue on the road. He goes city to city, staging clinic protests and visiting churches. He wants to convince preachers to get on board. I realized if you get the shepherd, you get the sheep. And over and over, he says, If you believe abortion is murder, act like it's murder. This is Operation Rescue's slogan. Randall chooses his words carefully. There's no room for debate. It's a statement designed to provoke an urgent response. It's a call to physical action. And people heed the call. We did it in New York. We did it in Atlanta. We did it in California. We had had hundreds and hundreds of arrests. Operation Rescue starts to take off. By the late 80s, their membership is swelling, and Randall's booking national TV interviews. He gets one with the 700 Club's Pat Robertson. Joining us live by telephone from the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta is Randall Terry. He's the director of Operation Rescue. And Randall, uh, what's happening next down there? We feel that it's, it's time that we began to sacrifice to put some teeth in our rhetoric, as some of the others have said. And to Randall uses each media appearance as an opportunity to recruit new members. And towards the end, I would say, for any of you who want to know more, please write us at Operation Rescue, P.O. Box Binghamton, New York, 13905. I would just say it over and over and over and over. And we went from having 200 people on our mailing list. In the summer of 88, we had 3,000 people on the mailing list. And within the next year, we were up to 30,000 names. And now it's time to put them into action. So Operation Rescue devises a campaign that will trump anything they've done to that point. It would capture the nation's attention and be a catalyst for that warm July afternoon at JFK Airport. And it happens in the American heartland. In Wichita, we'll dance. We'll come by the hundreds and the thousands. I think that Wichita, because of what happened, made us understand that we were under siege. That's next. It's a hot June day in 1991. A group of protesters gathers outside a medical office in Wichita, Kansas, to make an announcement. They say Operation Rescue is coming to town, and they're going to shut down all the clinics in the city. They're going to have a summer of mercy. Operation Rescue chooses Wichita for a few reasons. Number one, there were three abortion clinics in the city. Number two, 
It's a convenient location to attract a lot of anti-abortion protesters from neighboring areas. And number three, they could protest a specific physician, George Tiller. They even announced their plans in front of his office. Lindsay knows him from her work at Women's Choice Clinic. He's famous, and she can see why they chose him. You're going after the people that have the knowledge base. So targeting George and targeting Wichita was really targeting quality training. Dr. Tiller was a legend in the reproductive healthcare community. And, like Lindsay, he'd seen his fair share of protesters. What I am doing is legal, what I'm doing is moral, what I'm doing is ethical, and you're not going to run me out of town. So Tiller strikes a deal with the police. He'll make it seem like the clinic is closed while Operation Rescue is in town. When, in reality, he'll still actually be working, just on the down low. This way, his patients and staff won't have to deal with the protesters, and Operation Rescue will feel like they got to win and move on. Right? We planned on going there for six days and ended up being there six weeks. When Tiller cut the deal with the police that he would close while we were there, the deal he cut actually inspired us to say to people, look, people, if we get enough activists in front of an abortion clinic, they will close. These are great optics for Operation Rescue. Randall points to the closed clinics and says, look, we've made Wichita an abortion-free city. Join us to keep it that way. And people did from all over the country. And I pray that God Almighty will one day bring you down on your knees and you will be begging God for mercy. Days turn into weeks and the crushing weight of Operation Rescue bears down on Wichita. Wichita police used two city buses and a rental truck to haul the pro-life rescuers to jail. These visuals, limp protesters being hauled off to jail, are great fodder for the national news outlets that have dropped into Wichita to broadcast the spectacle. All three major networks are sending out a crew. PBS is doing stuff. Phil Donahue decides that he's going to actually shoot a show in Wichita. I was tempted to look into the camera and say, Pastor, the vision has come true. Three weeks into the Summer of Mercy, and Wichita is totally overrun with protesters. That's when a federal judge steps in. If the local police won't restore order, federal agents would. Judge Patrick Kelly, visibly angry on the bench, called the leaders of Operation Rescue hypocrites and promised to see them all in jail if the clinic blockades continued. The judge told Operation Rescue leader Randall Terry that the U.S. Justice Department has agreed to provide all the federal marshals necessary to enforce his order. Federal Judge Patrick Kelly calls in U.S. marshals to keep Wichita's clinics open. He tells Operation Rescue... They should say farewell to their family and bring their toothbrush, and I mean it, because they're going to jail. They thought, hey, if we can just get Randall Terry behind bars, this whole thing will go away. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't understand how deep our bench is. Operation Rescue has this savvy attorney during the Summer of Mercy, Jay Sekulow. Jay Sekulow, as in Donald Trump's personal lawyer and lead attorney during his first impeachment trial. He was a get. 
Randall wants to keep up momentum in Wichita, and with their new powerhouse lawyer, he feels like he has some muscle behind him. The DOJ issues a brief citing with Operation Rescue, and it gets support from someone high up, the Deputy Solicitor General, John Roberts. He's, of course, the current Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The brief argues that federal law offers no protection for patients trying to enter abortion clinics. It startled us because we had had so many failures in court. We had had so many things go wrong that we prevailed. I was on cloud nine. Randall Terry, founder of Operation Rescue, said he was pleased to have the Bush administration on his side. It looks like his honor, Judge Kelly, has gone against the law, and he's going to eat a big portion of humble pie before this is over. I hope he enjoys the taste of it. Operation Rescue wins the summer. As August comes to a close, they take a victory lap and host a 25,000-person rally. Evangelical darling Pat Robertson is there. The issue is a moral imperative from God Almighty to rescue those led to slaughter. Randall Terry had left his mark. The pressure is unrelenting. The FDA bans the abortion pill, Randall Terry has made it onto Donahue, and the DOJ seems to have Operation Rescue's back. Lindsay, the clinic worker, sees all of this. I don't believe that the government was on my side. And the solution is out there. RU486, the abortion pill, could be the key to challenging groups like Operation Rescue. By the end of the Summer of Mercy, in 1991, the medication is available more widely in Europe and in Asia, too. But there is no movement in the U.S. Activists tried to lobby the Bush administration to lift the ban on RU486, but nothing was working. We are being denied technology and we are being denied science because of Christian theocracy. The Summer of Mercy spurs activists on the left. They decide they won't be denied any longer. This is something that we need to defend women. We need to defend against this craziness. But how will they get this game-changing medication here? The government won't bring it in. And so far, the makers of the pill aren't asking for FDA approval either. Well, when the official channels are closed, you find a different way. You just have to say, you know, I'm not waiting anymore. And that if we don't move now, how are we going to go forward? Activists need to go big. They need someone with a plan bold enough to go toe-to-toe with the likes of Randall Terry and Operation Rescue. And lucky for them, that someone is already there, waiting in the wings of the abortion rights movement for decades. But the architect of this plot isn't a doctor or a clinic worker. We knew... It had to be done, and we were determined that American women would get it. It's that 72-year-old man from the plane. His name is Larry. Larry Later. And he's ready to break the law to bring the abortion pill into America. 
It was a move of desperation. Like many other of Larry's ideas, I thought it was totally harebrained, totally crazy. It's a plot so wild that his own lawyers beg him to do literally anything else to bring RU486 to the states and save abortion access for a generation of Americans. I know that RU486 is the treatment I want. It allows me control of my body and removes me from the operating room and from surgery. This season on Cover Up, The Pill Plot, we dig into the risky plan to bring RU486 to America amid a rising tide of aggression from anti-abortion forces. Can we find a patient who wanted to do this? We found a punk. We found an anarchist. That's not who they wanted. She was treated abysmally. Our telephone was tapped. Abortion rights activist Lawrence Later hired his own chemist to dissect the French abortion pill. We were afraid that, you know, the lab would get blown up. We knew where Clinton was staying and we knew his schedule. As he left to jog this morning, Clinton was confronted by a man from Operation Rescue, posing as an autograph seeker. 61 arsons, 266 bomb threats, 57 acid attacks. People climbing over your 10-foot fence to get into your garbage. You're talking to your mailman like you're a fucking serial killer. 395 incidents of vandalism, 68 assaults. It is a national disgrace that women have had to wait so long for a drug that has proved its value worldwide. Sometimes justice moves very slowly. The bottom line is we never give up. To listen to the rest of the season, just search for Cover Up the Pill Plot wherever you get your podcasts. The full season is available right now. Thanks for listening, and happy binging. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.